back seat in the back of the room. If you want to grab one of those on the way in, it's a copy of a page out of a book that I have, and I hope to, by the end of this lesson, to, to get to why I'm giving you that. Something that I've recognized as a common experience in my own life when it's time to get in the van and go somewhere, that somewhere uh, along the, the way there's the temptation to complain about the ride and the snacks that are available and how long it's taken. And I know that that's not unique to me, that you have struggled with that as well because the Bible tattled on you. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, it says, No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. Any man who's tried to get in a minivan with children <laughs> has had to deal with these things. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. What we're going to see here in Numbers 10, 11 to 12, 26, that's what we're going to be looking at today, is in a sense something similar to a, a minivan, but it's a caravan instead. And you know what it's like. It's time to, to go on vacation. You get in the van. There's complaints in the van. The people want beef jerky instead of peanut butter sandwiches. Then the driver gets cranky and complains about the passengers. Yeah, was it I, Lord, who conceived all these people? And where am I to get beef jerky for all these people? But over time, hopefully, the, the driver begins to see the need for the Holy Spirit to change people's hearts. Meanwhile, the passengers conspire to take over the driver's seat while the driver develops a new prayer, not of complaint, but of saying, God, heal us from our complaining hearts. We see a similar sort of reality here in Numbers 10, 11 to 12, 26. And as we approach this text, I'd like to open us in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we pray that as we would look into your word that we would see you as you truly are the gracious God who calls us and corrects us and directs us and is with us but that you would also help us to see ourselves as we are and the struggles that we have in our hearts to be ungrateful for the good gifts and privileges that you have given us we pray that you would shape us in greater holiness and faithfulness to you so that you would be honored and glorified by our lives. Amen. Numbers chapter 10, verse 11 begins, Now it happened in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month that the cloud was lifted from over the tabernacle of testimony, and the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai, then the clouds settled down in the wilderness of Paran, so they moved out for the first time according to the command of Yahweh by the hand of Moses. 
So finally, we pick up in numbers uh, chronologically. You remember some of the things we had some flashbacks to the tabernacle, flashback to Passover. Now we're picking up on 20 days into this thing from Numbers 1-1. It's not Numbers 1-1 is first day, second year, second month. Now we're in the second year, second month on the, the 20th day. So finally here in chapter 10, we've moved 20 days and history and in this what you see in the continuing verses is that the camps go out as directed in in order and along the way in verse 29 says then Moses said to to Hobab the son of Reuel the Midianite Moses's father-in-law we are setting out to the place in which Yahweh said I will give it to you come with us and we will do you good, for Yahweh has promised good concerning Israel. But he said to him, I will not come, but rather will go to my own land and kin. So Moses is here talking to his brother-in-law, Hobab, which is you know perhaps a name that you could reserve for future children or pets, maybe. And... This, we see, was the son of Ruul. This is another name for Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. And we see here a little bit of wilderness evangelism. He's talking to his brother-in-law and said, you know, come with us. You know, join us in following Yahweh. And at first, Hobab says, you know, I'm not going to leave my land and kindred, which if Martin Luther was there would say, let good and kindreds go in this mortal life. Also, you see this sort of evangelistic call is similar to exactly what Abraham had received to leave his land and kindred, his father's house. It's similar to the call of Jesus to his disciples to follow him and to love him more than any other family relationship and to to leave their lands and see them as less important things and more important to go out to follow Yahweh in the wilderness. So, it says they set out in verse 33. They would set out from the Mount of Yahweh three days with the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh journeying in front of them for the three days to spy out a resting place for them. So you see what of one of the privileges that Hobab would have if he joined was being a a spy to be able to look at this land that they would enter into in the future. And in all of this, you see that God isn't concerned only for the sons of Israel. He's concerned also for Gentiles and them joining in this salvation and joining in this privilege of what the Israelites had been given. And you see those privileges laid out there in verse 33, the, the Mount of Yahweh. Now, what was the privilege that the sons of Israel received at the Mount of Yahweh? The revelation of who God is through the 10 words. So you see, this is their king leading them out. He's pulling together his army 
And they're being reminded of the privilege of this is the king who reveals himself in relationship and who is with you. And they also had the privilege of the ark of Yahweh, of the covenant of Yahweh, journeying in front of them. So you see the other privilege they have is that Yahweh is the king who leads them. He's not only the king who reveals himself, but the king who leads them and is with them. In verse 34, we read of another privilege, which was the cloud of Yahweh was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Now, the other privilege is the king guides them as well, and he's their ever-present help and guide throughout all of these things. And he invites also the Gentiles to join the privileges of the sons of Israel and in verse 35, you see Moses' faith in Yahweh. As it says, then it happened when the ark set out that Moses said, Rise up, O Yahweh, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it came to rest, he said, Return, O Yahweh, to the myriad thousands of Israel. You see in this text that Yahweh has enemies, and if you're going to follow him, you're going to have his enemies. It uh, assumes that if you follow him, you're going to have enemies. You can think about how Jesus also communicated this similar truth in John 15. He said, if the world hates you, know that it, it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. You see here that to follow Yahweh is to join in the assaults that come on him from his enemies and to be a partaker of that as well. But lest one despair of that, you see Moses' faith in Yahweh when he says, return, O Yahweh, to the myriad thousands of Israel. Once you recognize these are his enemies and Yahweh is the real army. We're not the real army. Yahweh is and we're trusting him to move us forward as the cloud, the pillar of cloud before us. So you see, Moses' willingness to go on this journey wasn't because he trusted in himself and the ability of the sons of Israel. Uh, there wasn't much reason for him to trust in himself or the sons of Israel at this point. You know, his only hope was and could be Yahweh which is a reminder to us in, in following our Lord to we can't trust in our own devices or strength ever. Uh, we want to follow the humble example of Moses here. But as you know, when you start on this journey of faith and following the Lord and you've gotten in the caravan and you've taken off on the path, that one of those things that happens along the way is complaining. You see that in chapter 11. The people start to complain about the snacks and the caravan. They don't like them. 
You look at the beginning of chapter 11. It says, now the people became like those who complain of calamity in the ears of Yahweh. And Yahweh heard it. And his anger was kindled and the fire of Yahweh burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Then the people therefore cried out to Moses and Moses prayed to Yahweh and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Taborah because the fire of Yahweh burned among them and the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is dried up. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now, the manna was like coriander seed in its appearance like that of bdellium. The people would go about and gather it and grind it between two millstones or beat it in the mortar and boil it in the pot and make cakes with it. And its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell in the camp at night, the manna would fall with it. This is a similar sort of episode in scripture to after God had given the 10 words. He gave them the immense privilege of revealing the 10 words or 10 commandments and the way that everybody responds is molten calf. You know, they think, well, the way that we respond to immense privilege is immense sin. You see the same sort of pattern played, played out here, but we don't want to overlook who is it that they're complaining against ultimately. Who had given them the food that they had in this new relationship with God? It's God that they're complaining against ultimately, and who is this God that they are complaining against? This is the God of the plagues. This is the God who destroys those who are against him. But this is also the God of the Passover who delivers the undeserving. This is the God who had parted the Red Sea. This is the God who knew that these people would come before bitter water that he had always planned to make sweet for them. This was the God who had already defeated the Amalekites for them and given some advice to them through Jethro. And all of their complaining, in which they weren't recognizing these things, they functioned as practical atheists, as if God hadn't given them good things. It says all of this was in the ears of Yahweh, which is a repeated phrase in here. You see it also in verse 18. It says, and Say to the people, set yourselves apart as holy for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the ears of Yahweh. So he's making known to them that he hears everything that they're saying. You know, there wasn't some tent or closet where they could hide the words of their mouth in this instance. And we learn about the God of creation, that he's the God who hears everything we say. Even when we get home from being gathered with the church today, he hears everything we say about all those people we just fellowshiped with. And how does God respond to their 
complaining. Well, very similar to Nadab and Abihu, fire. And you would think you know, that was enough to just you know have lived through that event to know that you don't complain against a holy God. And how was it that they were you know, enticed or tempted to even be given to this complaint? You see that in verse 4, there was this group called the rabble. They had greedy desires. These are the rabble rousers or the pagan provokers who went out with the sons of Israel. And you see what's happening is the nations are influencing Israel instead of Israel being an influence upon the nations. And you keep seeing that ironically happening throughout, you know, whether it be Jethro being the one who's blessing Israel rather than Israel blessing him or, you know, in this case, what you see happening is instead of Israel being a light to the nations, they're becoming like the nations, which reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15.33 where it says, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. It says, think, think about the types of friends that these people had. Now, they didn't necessarily pick these people. These people kind of picked them, and they were all, they're stuck in the caravan together and dealing with this situation. And what they're complaining about here is God's faithful provision. Now, that's not how they saw it. You know, this is, God, like, all he gave us was manna. But then it points out, you know, here at the end, it's like, well, why do you have all these variety of ways that you could prepare the manna and different things you could make out of it? Well, to show God didn't give them something monotonous. Their complaining wasn't justified. There was a lot that you could do with this stuff, but they weren't thinking of the variety of the different things that they could make about it and say, well, thank you, God, for this super versatile food that you've given us that we can turn it into at least three things. But they're like, oh, we don't have the stuff that we used to have back in Egypt. And what you see what's happening is they started to idealize Egypt. Like, that was pretty sweet living back there. You know, life was good in the B.C. days. You know, as you know, uh, in the beginning of the, the Christian life, the, we often find that the Christian life and following Christ is more difficult than our days as an unbeliever, where there were people, you know, friends, family that we got along with perfectly fine until we became Christians. And then all of a sudden, you just can't get along like you used to. You've broken that fellowship with darkness and they recognize it and so they ostracize you and put you out from some of the things that you would have been apart from otherwise but we also know in the christian experience that becoming a christian doesn't always involve our days becoming more difficult but they also become more joyful and we don't want to overlook that and just say well it's just difficult it's hard it's like, well, I have more joy than ever, and I also have more hope than ever. This reminds me of a song I had listened to this week where part of the, the lyrics is, Earth has no sorrows which heaven cannot heal. 
You know, and we think about that reality when we endure all sorts of difficulties. But when we endure them, we want to be careful of not complaining of God's gifts. And sometimes that, that, that gift is the temptation or the trial that comes. Or, you know, as Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, Blessed are you, you know, when, when others persecute you and speak falsely of you which is how we should think about it. Usually we just think this is bad, which is wrong. It's not bad, it's hard. But it's also because we're blessed in being joined with, you know, following our Lord. And how do we know that we're with him? Well, we have the same enemies that he has. And so in a way, it, it confirms that our faith is legitimate, that we have actually been officially adopted into God's family and belong to him. And that's why things are like this. So it's a reminder of the gift of belonging to God. But as we had mentioned, it's something that also cautions us to think about our network of friends around us and their influence of us as well when we're around the complainers, that they're going to be a, a disease to you potentially. But you also want to think about what kind of friend are you? Are you one of those uh, complaining insider sort of friends, which you, know, you see here, you look at the example of Moses later and what type of friend that he was and that he, in a way, confronted and prayed for the complainers when he deals with the Miriam and Aaron situation. We'll get to that. Chapter 11 Verse 10, you also see that uh, Moses, in a sense, who's the, the driver of this caravan, he's also given into the complaining. It says, now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent, and the anger of Yahweh was kindled greatly, and it was evil in the sight of Moses. So Moses said to Yahweh, why have you allowed this evil toward your slave? Why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all this people on me? Was it I who conceived all this people? Was it I who gave birth to them that you should say to me, carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing baby to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me saying, give us meat that we may eat. I alone am not able to carry all this people because it is too heavy for me. So if you are going to deal thus with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight and do not let me see my wretchedness. Maybe you've had a similar sort of prayer in your minivan or whatever, your suburban <laughs> on a little family vacation. And you can relate to Moses in some extent. You know, this trip would be nice if it wasn't for those people. You know, Lord, it's these people that you gave me. That's the problem. Which is how we tend to view change. It's like, well, this would all be better if all of these other people would stop complaining. But we don't tend to see ourselves as part of the problem. But what we see here is Moses is very much a part of the problem. And he's very self 
self-focused, self-centered. You see that he keeps saying, I, 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 and then all these people, which was he ultimately the one who was responsible for all these people? No, ultimately the, the Lord was, but Moses was looking at these people wrong. All he could see was a problem on two legs. There's another problem on two legs. Another problem on two legs. And he's like, where did these come from? Well, God put them here. So he's putting the blame on God, but he's also seeing himself and taking up a responsibility that's not his. You know, Yahweh is the one who had promised to guide them and was. And you could say that Moses had something of a Messiah complex and say, you know, I, all these people, I, all these people, you know, where am I going to come up with the meat? Well, it wasn't his responsibility to, to come up with the meat. He wasn't their provider in that sense, which you should have seen from all the things that have happened with the, the manna, water from the rock, things like this. Often what we need to do is just be prayerful, patient, wait on the Lord, and perhaps his solution is just around the corner. You're actually not even going to have to be patient for very long, which you see just on the other end of this prayer in verse 16. This is eleven sixteen. It says, Yahweh therefore said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men from the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and their officers, and take them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the Spirit who is upon you and will put him upon them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you will not bear it all alone. So in a sense, it's, the Lord says, I, I've always planned to have helpmates for you, somebody to help you through this and not to leave it on you alone. Now, sometimes this is your, you know, your wife in the van who tells you, you know, you seem kind of, cranky and like you're kind of responding wrong to this you're like what are you talking about i'm not yelling i'm not overreacting <laughs> but we don't want to overlook god's gracious response he didn't just say oh yeah moses fire and it just burns him and, he, and he's gone but he says all right get there's 70 guys out there that are going to help you with this and you see you and you see this continually throughout scripture, that God having these very gracious responses to people in trouble that respond to him very wrongly. And the problems that you see within the travelers through the wilderness here, it has to deal with food and leadership. And Psalm 106 comments on this. It says, of these people, they quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel, but craved intensely in the wilderness and put God to the test in the wasteland. So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease against their lives. So remember they wanted this meat and God gave it to them. And what you find out in this is what you want is not always good. As you know, as the story goes on, this is in verses 31 to 35. 
It talks about a wind comes forth from Yahweh, quail from the sea. In verse 33, it says, While the meat was still between their teeth before it was chewed, the anger of Yahweh was kindled against the people, and Yahweh struck the people with a very severe plague. Now, if you knew that that was going to be coming with the meat that you wanted so bad, you might forfeit it and say, you know, I'll take another manna sandwich, please. <laughs> you see in this, in the, the struggle is, you know, in verse 20, you see uh, the last question there. I'll read the whole verse and we'll look at that last question. It says, but a whole month until it, they're going to have month, meat for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you because you have rejected Yahweh who is among you. So remember they had asked that question, you know, is Yahweh among us or not? Well, they needed a reminder of that. The one that you're rejecting is Yahweh. He is with you. And you've wept before him saying, why did we ever go out from Egypt? <laughs> why did we do that? It was so amazing to live there. You know, and, it, and we can be short-sighted like that, too, when trials come. To, well, why, you know, I, th I think of a, a friend who, I, who, after he had professed Christ, it meant that his, his mom kicked him out of the house. She didn't want to have anything to do with him, didn't want to hear about it. And then very quickly, he's like, why did I ever say that I was a Christian? He was like, this has just put me in, like, I don't have anywhere to live. I don't have anywhere to stay now. What am I going to do? And... We want to recognize in ourselves there can be that same sort of temptation when a trial comes. It's like, well, why did I even, you know, make Christ known and then put myself in this situation where people would treat me so poorly? If I never would have said anything, perhaps this wouldn't have happened. Well, the one problem we just, that we had just discussed here was the food. The other one is with leadership, you know, Moses needed some more help, which the Lord provides. And why don't you look at verses 21 to 23 in chapter 11. It says, Moses said, The people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot. Yet you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? And Yahweh said to Moses, is okay let's just start with what <laughs> Moses is saying he's being very sarcastic like he, he just think like how is this realistically going to happen uh, this is a lot of people and the only thing that we have a lot of out here is sand but here's what Yahweh says to Moses is Yahweh's power limited which is also his word the word hand is translated is Yahweh's hand limited now, Moses should know the answer to that question, being the guy who's carried the staff, which represents God's strength, and he's seen, you know, all of the plagues carried around uh, about. Is Yahweh's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will happen for you or not. He says, now you're going to see whether I'm going to be faithful to do what I said or not. So you see here, Moses he gets a, a little saucy before dinner because he's been assuming a responsibility that isn't his because all he could imagine in this is it's going to be me by myself slaughtering a bunch of animals. And 
in a sense, what he had done is deified himself and thinking that this was something that he had to come up with a solution for. He had to control the circumstances and it was ultimately up to him. But you know, there's a freedom in recognizing we're not God. We're actually not in control of any situation really and definitely not in, the, in control of changing other people. We can't, we can't change the other passengers in the van. The only person we can change is ourselves by the grace of God. We can't change how everybody else is responding, but we can change how we're responding to our circumstances and trust the Lord. And we know that the Christian life is very much a, a journey of de-deifying ourselves and learning the example of Jesus to say, not my will, but yours be done. The Christian life is a continual reversing of what happened in the garden where when Adam and Eve partook of the fruit, they were tempted to say, well, you'll be like God knowing good and evil. You'll get to define what's good and evil for yourself. Now, that's especially true when, I, uh, when it comes to relational conflict where we think, well, it would be very good if you know, the other people would change. But we overlook the fact that this whole heat in the wilderness shows that I'm somebody who needs to change. And you see, that's happening with Moses. He's seeing he's part of the problem. He's thinking, I'm the only solution. <laughs> what the Lord's teaching him is, you're part of the problem. I'm the only solution. So with the two solutions, you know, one that God provides is the quell. You see that in verses 31 to 35. And it says that there went forth a wind from Yahweh. This word wind is also translated as the, the spirit who was hovering over the waters in creation. That's the same word, and it's from this wind or spirit that the quail were brought from the sea. So you're seeing some involvement of the spirit of God and the judgment of God that's carried out while the meat was still between there teeth and I like what one commentator wrote on this he says the scene must have been similar to a riot people screaming birds flapping their wings everywhere the pell-mell movement of meat hungry people in a sea of birds dare we picture people ripping at the birds eating flesh before cooking it bestial in behavior they must have been like a sugar crazed boy in a child's daydream the boy afloat a chocolate sandwich cookie raft in a sea of chocolate syrup and nibbling at the cookie before drowning in the dark, sweet sea. The drama of the text is exquisite. While the meat was still between their teeth, the plague of the Lord struck them down. Before they could swallow, God made them choke. Thus this place took on the odious name Kibroth Hatavah, which means graves of greediness or graves of craving. 
These graves marked the death camp of those who had turned against the food of the Lord's mercy. What a contrast with the ending of chapter 10. We are in a different world and certainly not a better one. So you think about that even in going on vacation, you know, prospects, anticipations are high and then you start driving and we are in a different world. <laughs> I want to highlight, you know, the work of God's spirit in this, which I've begun to do and comparing that, showing how that word wind relates to God's spirit, but this is more explicit in God appointing leadership in verses 16 to 30, that you see that this is a Holy Spirit-empowered leadership. Look at verse 17. It says, Then I will come down and speak with you there, and I will take of the spirit who is upon you and will put him upon them. And when it comes to verse 29, it says, And Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the people of Yahweh were prophets, that Yahweh would put his spirit upon them. So he's saying, It would be good if the Holy Spirit wasn't just upon me and the leadership, but everybody. Moses recognizes here that only the Holy Spirit can change people. And what they were really lacking was not meat, but the Spirit. Moses knows that God's Spirit is the solution to the sin problem from the very beginning. Moses understands to some degree that for this to change, you must be born again. And you see, the Holy Spirit... Was, has always been the, the one by which men are regenerated. It wasn't just waiting for the new covenant to happen or the, the New Testament. This has always been the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate people. And Moses knew that. Uh, he knew that very early on, which is, you know, you see this highlighted again in his final words in Deuteronomy, where he tells these people that, they need to have a circumcised heart, but they can't do that. They won't do that. But he says, but God's going to give you one someday. But it's going to be the work of his spirit that does it. And in that way, he looked forward to the new covenant, but also recognizing it was already the reality then in the old covenant that God has always regenerated people by the Holy Spirit. If you're going to be holy, you need the Holy Spirit. When we come to chapter 12 and the tension in the van here, the question gets asked, why can't we take the driver's seat? We, we can push those pedals just like anybody else. You know, gas is on the right side, brakes are on the left side. You know, we can do stuff like this. Chapter 12 begins, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had taken as a wife, for he had taken a Cushite woman. So, one, they're complaining against his, his wife. That's a situation here. And, and here's the other thing they say in verse 2. And they said, has Yahweh indeed spoken only through Moses? You know, is this the only one who can drive this thing? Has he not spoken through us as well? And then here's these words here, and Yahweh 
heard it. He hears everything. Even though you have the door shut and the windows rolled up, he heard it. What they had failed to recognize, it's, you know, yes, they had indeed heard from Yahweh and could speak of the things that they had learned from him, but as they're corrected by the Lord, you see there's something unique about God's relationship with Moses. This picks up in verse 6. It says, and he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, Yahweh, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. So they say, yes, there are other people who are prophets, but Moses is super unique here. Well, how so? He says, uh, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth. Indeed, clearly, and not in riddles, and he beholds the form of Yahweh. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, against Moses? So, you know, they should have recognized, you know, Moses has a very unique relationship to Yahweh, and we should be very afraid of opposing that, because this is how God wants to do things. And when you oppose how God wants to do things, you get stuff like Nadab and Abihu, or killer meat. Moses or Miriam and Aaron, they want to know, well, why, you know, why does Moses always get to be the spokesperson? Because God's spoken to us too. Why can't we play the same role and get a little recognition here? Are we not also gifted and able to do the same thing? And all of this, we find out what was inside of Miriam and Aaron. But this is in contrast to what was inside of Moses. You see this in verse 3. You might have this in parentheses in your Bible translation. It says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. So God wants you to see there's a contrast here. There's a similarity first. There's a similarity. They both sinned. They both messed up. But you also see that God is looking on the heart ultimately. And he's showing there's something inside of the, the hearts of Miriam and Aaron. But there's also something that's inside of the heart of Moses that he's going to bring out through this whole event. And you think of you know, trials are something that God gives to to squeeze the sponge of our life. And so, well, how do, you, how do you know what's inside of a sponge? Well, you squeeze it and stuff comes out. So he takes Miriam and Aaron and he squeezes them. And what he shows them is, you don't like Moses' wife and you're jealous for his position. But what's going to happen here with Moses when he, he gets squeezed is you're going to see he's going to pray for his enemies. We're going to get to that. But who is it that's really driving this caravan? Was it Moses, ultimately? Was he really the, the guy in the driver's seat? Yeah, look at verse 4. It says, Suddenly Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three, come out to the tent of meeting. Since he heard them, they got caught. I want to talk to you three. 
So, so the three of them came out. Then Yahweh came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam, and then both came forward. So this is kind of like, you know, dad says, you three, out of the van. I need to talk to you. And everything gets very serious all of a sudden. <laughs> this is a, uh, nobody's really complaining anymore. They're listening now. Now, Moses was, you know, God's delegated mediator for a time. It says this in Hebrews 3, that Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. Which we had read that in Numbers 12, 7. It says this was for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope. You could say in a sense what Moses' role was, he was a driving in, uh, instructor to, to teach people to grow up and move out from under his roof and go and live under the roof of Christ. And in dealing with this situation, the caravan, it gets pulled over, as we've discussed, and the way that Yahweh responds is in anger, he strikes Miriam with leprosy. We see that in verse 9, it says, So the anger of Yahweh burned against them, and he went away, but the cloud withdrew from over the tent, and behold, Miriam was leprous, as white as snow. And Aaron turned toward Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. Now, is this something that Moses has ever seen happen before? You think of there was that time when Yahweh told Moses, put your hand in your bosom. And he took it out, and it was leprous like snow. So he's saying, I've seen this. <laughs> it, it's happened to me, but then he, Yahweh said, return your hand into your bosom. And when he returned his hand to his bosom, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it returned to being like the rest of his flesh, which that sign was one of the witnesses that testified against Israel's unbelief, which you see that here. There's a testimony against their unbelief. There's a testimony against Miriam and Aaron's unbelief. But when Moses saw all of this, he didn't turn to her and say, serves you right. But he could recall those words yeah, after that whole incident when the Torah tree was thrown into the bitter waters and made it sweet, where he remembered, oh, Yahweh is the one who heals us. He takes a, something that's bitter and he makes it sweet and he uses a mediator to do that and he wants me to be that guy. He wants me to pray for other people. But you remember back in Exodus 15, what was said was, if you will earnestly listen to the voice of Yahweh your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have put on the Egyptians. For I, Yahweh, am your healer. Moses had experienced this, seen this, been taught this, and now he has the opportunity to disciple others in this by how he responds to this situation. And you see that 
picking up in verse 11. This is 12, 11. It says, Then Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, I beg you, do not place this sin on us in which we have acted foolishly and in which we have sinned. Oh, do not let her be like one dead whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes from his mother's womb. And Moses cried out to Yahweh, saying, O God, heal her, I pray. You see, God wanted to disciple Miriam and Aaron to have this response that they were having, but also for Moses to have this response of praying for them and being a mediator of grace. And here you see Moses' humility in action. Uh, Moses was a very humble man. And how do you see that? Well, he, he didn't want to just see, you know, tit for tat in this situation and vengeance being carried out. But in humility, he cared for his sister. He, in a sense, prayed for his enemies who happened to be some of his closest family members. And we know from Isaiah 66 too, this is the type of person that the Lord looks to, the one who is humble, contrite in spirit and trembles at God's word. But in contrast to what we see with Miriam and Aaron, God doesn't look to the arrogant, the divisive in spirit who trample on his word and live by their own desires. But he's patient with them all. He cares for them all. And God is working out his goodwill through this situation. And here what we see is how sinners need a mediator who will intercede for them. When we think about that in relation to ourselves, can you think of a mediator that God sent for sinners like us who would be tempted in the wilderness but respond the way that we should respond when being tempted in the wilderness of life? The answer is found in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. In Matthew 4, 1 through 11, this is the passage we refer to it as Jesus' temptation. He was led out in the wilderness by the Spirit. And he was tested in all of the ways that Israel was tested. He was tested concerning God's provision of bread. He was tested concerning God's protection of his life. He was tested concerning God's guidance by bringing him in to the wilderness. And in testing Jesus, we find out who he really is. Uh, he's the one who victoriously wins our salvation for us. You know, it was God's standard for Israel that they actually perfectly obey him in the wilderness. But what he taught them during that time is that is indeed my standard and you guys can't keep it. You need me to keep it for you. And so he sends Jesus to keep it for them, but he's not only their victory and our victory and salvation being our substitute obedience. He's also our example in how we're to respond when the heat gets turned up in the wilderness and we're tempted to complain about what God's provided for us today, how he's chosen to protect us, and how he's guiding us in life. 
In Matthew 4, we see that Jesus reverses all of that stuff. He, he reverses the acts of faithlessness with his faithfulness so that he can give his faithfulness to us as a gift, but then also show us how to live through situations like that in life as well. Just like you would teach in John 6 that he's the bread from heaven. You see, in Matthew 4, he solves the leadership problem and that he's the leader that we need. Moses isn't the leader. Moses isn't the solution. Moses pointed to the leader and the solution, which is Jesus Christ, who is also the solution to the food problem. But in solving the food problem for some people there in John chapter 6, he also shows that he's the bread from heaven. The provision that you really need is not for God to give you the food that you want or to perform cool miracles for you. He's like, I'm the miracle. I'm the thing that you need. And in this text, what we learn is that God, God hears everything in our lives. But even though he hears everything, he continues to call us toward him. He continues to correct us and guide us and to teach us even today from the example of Israel. And if you would, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. I want to, this is a text that we'll, we have come to and we'll c come to probably a few more times. That uh, teaches us how to read the book of Numbers. 1 Corinthians 10 for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were struck down in the wilderness. Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example and they were written down for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have arrived. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape, so also, provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Which brings us to a little sheet of paper that I gave you as a handout here. And I'm going to point out one paragraph on that, and we'll talk about the little chart there. But that first paragraph after the bullet points there starts with the word notice from the book how people change it says notice how much israel's response to hardship maps onto ours 
we face hard things and we complain about things as mundane as a menu. Before long, our complaining becomes an assessment of blame. Then the blaming goes vertical as it questions God's wisdom and goodness. We too are in the wilderness of a fallen world. We have not yet entered the promised land of eternity, so we face hardships like Israel did. Paul tells the Corinthians and us that we gain enormous spiritual benefit when we learn from their example. So on that chart there, you see at the very top of it, there's you know, heat, which is life in the wilderness, which in this case, it, back in Israel, it had to deal with wet things. Had to deal with food and leadership, you know, problems with that. And you could think of other things in, in life, whether it be, you know, traveling on vacation, situation with your spouse, situation with your children, your job, your co-workers, financial situation, your health. You know, God turns up the heat in the wilderness of this world, and what it does is it exposes what is in our heart, which brings us to those two trees that are there. You know, either we're going to, you know, bear the fruit of the Spirit, and we're going to reap and sow that, or the thorns of the curse, and we're going to reap and sow those things. And you see those are, there's a lot of uh, references into 1 Corinthians 10, which I encourage you to, to look at. We don't have time to work through all of that. But you see that on the fruit side that there's encouragement to be found in looking at the scripture and looking at the rock who is with us, which is the protector provider who is with us and Christ is that rock that ultimately we're pointed to the cross when we're thinking of any sort of difficult situation in life so that we can stand up under that temptation with the God who is with us, with a focus on Christ who is the fulfillment of all the ages. But we can also be given to what the Israelites were, which was greediness for these certain things that they desired but they didn't have. What should make us think when we're tempted or becoming angry or complaining and think, well, what is it that I want that I don't have? And very quickly we find out that's the, that's the thing that we worship. It's either an idol or it's God. You say, well, I'll only be happy if, fill in the blank, I would only be happy if all those other people would just change. Well, I would be happy if, you know, only I got that food that I wanted. Or I would be happy if I knew that I could pay my mortgage for the rest of this year. I see that we've made an idol out of those things, and the only thing that should fill in that blank is, I'll only be happy if Jesus is my king. That's the only thing that should fit in that blank, and that's the reminder that we need to have so that we don't set our hearts on evil and then give ourselves to the evil behavior of grumbling, which is... So easy and so super common that we probably overlook it most of the time when people are complaining about things. But perhaps through continuing to come back to this topic, it'll make us 
more hypersensitive in ourselves first rather than others. So we don't think, oh, there's all these people in this church that complain all the time. Well, maybe you're part of the problem. <laughs> and we want to look at ourselves and to think, well, how can we be somebody who helps one another or to follow Moses' example and we're the person who says, God, heal us. You know, I, I'm also a complainer and I need the help to live out the victory that Christ won at the cross and canceling my sin debt, but also the power of it. I don't have to live in it anymore. And he's given me the fellowship of other people to endure and to be victorious in this trial. I, I'm not a slave of sin anymore. I don't ever have to sin. I can just look at sin and it tries to boss me around. I just say, you're not the boss of me anymore. I got a new master. I got a new way of life. I got other things to do today. And we need to be reminded that sin's a bad boss. We're here to follow Jesus. So somebody make a refrigerator magnet. Yeah. Sin, you're not my boss. Jesus is. <laughs> On that note, I'll close us in prayer. Our gracious Lord and Master, we thank you for your kind and gracious correction in our lives. And we pray it would humble us to see ourselves as we are, but to see that you're gracious with those who are tempted and that you are indeed a sympathetic high priest toward us, that you never scowl at us or distance us from your throne of grace based on our performance, but we can always come before your throne of grace beneath your smile because of your cross work and what you have done to completely forgive us of all of our sins and to break its power. And you've also blessed us with the privilege of the fellowship of one another to be a help to each other, to endure when we're tempted, but also to be corrected and to have an example of gratitude rather than ingratitude. And I pray that you would sanctify us in our fellowship today to help us to walk in the good works that you have prepared for us so that your name would be honored and the fellowship that we have in you would be enjoyed. We are your happy slaves and pray that you would continue to make us more holy. Amen.